0: Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The election is over, but not before revealing a nation sharply divided. A nation divided both demographically and geographically. To find out why one corner of our country voted as it did, senior correspondent Ted Koppel traveled deep into the heart of Trump country to report our Sunday Morning cover story.
1: When coal was king, McDowell County, West Virginia, was a thriving place, full of promise. Then the mines started shutting down and the economy cratered. But the people who still live here heard something in Donald Trump's message that gave them hope.
2: Ain't gonna say he is a savior. If we do have a chance, he could possibly help us out.
1: Later on Sunday morning, the voters of McDowell County gave Donald Trump a four to one margin of victory. Now they're waiting to see what happens next.
0: We have a huge archive of photographs to look through this morning. Photos collected by a man known first and foremost for his music. With Anthony Mason, we'll let the collector show us around. How many photographs do you have? Um,
3: Probably near eight now, 8,000.
4: 25 years ago, Sir Elton John suddenly started collecting photographs. Had something changed in you, do you yeah, think? Yeah, I'd gotten sober. I was seen with different eyes. Today, his collection is one of the most important in the world. And this is a man, Ray. I love this. Ahead like on Sunday morning, the, the, the Sir Elton John gives like us a, a tour. A movie.
0: Warren Beatty is a Hollywood legend and has the years and long list of credits to prove it. This morning, he talks with our Mo Rocca.
5: It's hard to believe that Warren Beatty has been a leading man for more than half a century. You don't look like you're 79. I, I, but
6: I feel like it. You get out of bed easily. I get out of bed. I get into bed easy. I get out of bed easy.
5: And this is what gets him out of bed now. Have you heard from people that I'm crazy? All right, come on, come on. The life and loves of Warren Beatty, ahead this Sunday morning.
0: What does it take to get a classic World War II aircraft up in the air again. For starters, a dedicated champion, like the man our Lee Cowan found.
7: He'd sat in a desert boneyard for almost 50 years. A survivor of the greatest generation that seemed to deserve a better end than this. Against all odds, he got
6: one. Let me tell you, it was worth all of the effort.
7: It's up! The man that made history fly again, later on Sunday morning.
0: Michelle Miller catches up with talk show host Trevor Noah. Chef Bobby Flay takes us in some classic American diners. Steve Hartman has the tale of a surprise package for our times.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Look at the Election Day map, and much of the nation appears to be Trump country. But zero in closely enough on just one spot, and you'll find real people with real concerns behind all that red. Our cover story is reported by senior correspondent Ted Koppel.
1: McDowell County, West Virginia, echoes to the sound of used-to-be's. There used to be 100,000 people in the county. Used to be. Back when the coal mines ran three shifts a day. That's another used to be. Automation cut back the workforce. Machines replaced men. That was already an issue back in 1960 when John F. Kennedy was campaigning here. What are your plans for the situation existing in the coal mines in West Virginia? I think
3: there are at least four or five things the government can do First is the area redevelopment bill.
1: JFK carried the county, carried the state. Folks here used to be staunch Democrats. Used to be.
2: Well, I graduated from high school over here in 1973, and it was bustling then. The streets were full, the businesses were here, and then I got laid off in 82. That's when the bottom went out.
1: McDowell County today, says Sheriff Martin West, is in desperate straits.
2: And this county it was one of the most prosperous in the state at one time. These were the billion dollar coal fields and they were just enjoying the, the richness of it. And now we're on the bottom and we're being totally neglected.
1: Most of the mines are closed now and the county's down to fewer than 19,000 residents. Too many of those on welfare and food stamps. Unemployment is more than double the national rate. This used to be a Walmart, used to be. So when the voters went to the polls last Tuesday, you look at our miners. Hillary Clinton wants to put all the miners out of business.
2: I'd say 90% of West Virginia will vote for Donald Trump. You know, ain't gonna say he is a savior. If we do have a chance, he could possibly help us out.
1: McDowell County was unambiguously Trump country.
9: Trump. I
2: voted for Trump. Trump. I like to see Trump win. President Donald J. Trump, 46-14. Hillary
1: Clinton, 14-29. Donald Trump swept West Virginia, trounced Hillary Clinton in McDowell County by almost four to one.
2: You really think things are going to change? Uh, I think that he can help us, yeah.
1: Sheriff West used to work in the mines. Then he spent seven years at this processing plant where they cleaned and sorted the coal that fired the furnaces at U.S. Steel. It shut down
2: now. They put all these regulations on us from Washington, and the, the mines is trying to operate. The, the people is counting on that in order to feed their family, to pay their bills. And, and obey obey the regulations that we have, but they keep putting more regulations upon us.
1: The Sterling Drive-In, established 1945, is one of the only places left that hasn't shut down. It's a good place to talk. This is Dolores Johnson. And,
8: uh, I'm the president of the McDade County Chamber of Commerce.
1: Dolores and Leroy Johnson have been married for almost four decades. He's a retired coal miner. Among other jobs. Uh, my name is
2: Brandon Burks. I'm a correctional officer at Stevens Correctional
1: Center. This is Kristen Mitchum, an unemployed single mother of three young children. When Mitchum was in ninth grade, Ed Evans was her science teacher. Now he's in state politics. Recently elected to the Western House of Delegates.
6: Eddie? Uh, Eddie Asbury, and I'm a president of Southern Metals Coal Company. I've got seven coal mines, I've got four of them running, three of them are down.
1: I want you folks to tell me why it is that people down here in McDowell County were so much smarter than everybody in New York and Washington and Los Angeles and Chicago. What did you know, Brendan, that we didn't know?
2: Really, to me, Donald Trump is... Probably the only way this county, and let alone state, is
1: going to survive. I mean, we've always been a coal county. Is Donald Trump going to be able to make a difference? Is the coal industry ever going to come back? And it's not continue? going to come back to where it was. I, I don't think we'll see the level,
10: but I think we will see some return of coal.
6: It's not a United States market or, or state market or county market. It's a world market. We've got to compete in the world, in the world.
1: And you think Donald Trump's going to be able to do that more I believe he will.
6: I do believe he will. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I've been a Democrat all my life.
1: All my life. Leroy Johnson used to work in one of Eddie Asbury's mines, but when it comes to politics, they part ways. Well, I voted for Hillary because she was more experienced and she was talking about more of the policies that we need and the, the, the things that we need to work on. Donald wasn't talking that he was just throwing words out there giving people what they wanted to hear, and I didn't think that was right. You didn't vote, did you? I did not vote. Why the hell not? I, (laughs) I felt
0: that this was the most ridiculous election I've ever witnessed in my life. I know I'm young, but they went about it the most childish way I think someone ever could through the whole election, I, I never heard either party talk about the lower class. I'm lower class. They're worried about middle class and higher class.
1: You're from here, you were born here? I was here. born and raised here. So you know a lot of people you own I age. do, I do. Is there a lot of desperation? There truly is. I, I would
9: have never imagined in my life that I would be in this kind of position. I don't wanna leave my home, but I feel as if I'm being forced out of my home because there's nothing here anymore.
1: Dolores, you're nodding your head. You see a lot of this?
9: Yes, and I agree with what she's saying. It's sad.
1: Uh
10: The nuclear family in McDowell County is is really broken down. You know, we have somewhere in the high 40% of kids that do not live with their, their natural mothers and fathers. Because? Uh, most of them will, will go off to find jobs in other places. They'll mail money back to grandma who takes care or Uncle
1: Bill who takes care of the kids. What's coming out of this community to me is that a lot of people voted for Donald Trump because they felt, what the hell, do what have, have we got moves? to lose? Mm-hmm. You buy that? Mm-hmm. I do. We have nowhere to go but up. There's a little disagreement about when McDowell County held its first Veterans Day parade, either 1918 or 1919, but it's one of the oldest in the country. This last Veterans Day, Friday, was picture perfect. The parade came down McDowell Street, and you could barely notice all the shut-down stores. There was a flavor of what it must have been like. Not everyone, but most people, seemed ready to give their president-elect a real chance. The voters of McDowell County gave Donald Trump a four-to-one margin of victory. I think because he said he's going to bring the coal industry back. That's right. You think he can do it?
6: I think he can do anything he said he could do. He's that good.
1: With the kids chanting their thanks to the veterans and the high school bands and the crowds lining either side of the street, you almost had a feeling of how it used to be.
0: And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, November 13th, 1930, 86 years ago today. The day the dairy industry experienced a genuine turnaround. For that was the day an experimental dairy farm in Plainsboro, New Jersey, owned by the Borden Company, inaugurated the Rotolactor. Best described as a bovine merry-go-round, the Rotolactor could mechanically wash and milk 50, I said 50 cows, in just 12 and a half minutes. Borden put a Rotolactor on display at the New York World's Fair in 1939. The story goes that when fairgoers kept asking which of the cows was Elsie, Borden's advertising mascot, the company plucked a jersey named You'll Do Lobelia from the herd and cast her in the part. She quickly became a celebrity in her own right and even got an on-screen credit in the 1940 film version of Louisa May Alcott's Little Men. (laughs) Sadly enough, Yuldu Lobelia, a.k.a. Elsie, was injured in an accident in 1941 and had to be put down. But she's remembered to this day in Plainsboro by this headstone. Over the years, other cows have stepped into the role of Elsie. She's considered one of the most successful advertising symbols of all time, In fact, we're told that she's actually received several honorary degrees, most notably Doctor of Bovinity. A veteran of World War II is up in the air once again, thanks, Lee Cowan tells us, to a small army of volunteers and one very determined Korean War vet.
2: So this is it, Lee.
0: Wow.
7: There are men with big plans. Then there's Tony Mazzolini. I still can't believe just the size of it. Whose plan was so big, it took up a hangar the size of a football field. This particular airplane is the last restorable B-29 in the world. A B-29, a sleek silver ghost of World War II. A bomber that both haunted and obsessed Tony
6: for nearly three decades. As part of the greatest generation, and we want to keep the memories alive.
3: Swarms of B-29s and carrier task forces carry destruction to the Japanese homeland.
7: Nicknamed the Super Fortress, the B-29 was the most technologically advanced bomber in the world at
3: the time. One day, August 5th, 1945,
7: one B-29 left on a special mission. The most famous, of course, was the Enola Gay dropped the first atomic bomb. Tony was a flight engineer on a B-29 during the Korean War. By then, the jet age had nearly rendered the legendary bomber obsolete. Those that hadn't been lost in combat were usually scrapped or sent to the China Lake Naval Weapons Center in California's Mojave Desert, where the once proud bombers were used for target practice.
2: They were just in millions of
6: pieces. Kind of an undignified end. It is to quite a historic aircraft.
7: Everyone told Tony any B-29 worth saving had been saved already. There were none left,
6: but they were wrong. I could see the silhouette on the horizon getting larger and larger, and my (laughs) heartbeat was getting faster and faster.
7: Out in that desert boneyard, he found a B-29 named Doc, defiantly, inexplicably, still in one piece, as if it had never given up the will to fly.
6: It was a a sanctuary for some of the desert birds and, and critters, you know.
7: With the help of a few dozen bomber buffs, Tony managed to tug old Doc out of the desert. Slowly, piece by giant piece, It was shipped back to the former Boeing plant in Wichita, Kansas.
3: They were building the mightiest aircraft in history.
7: The very same plant where Doc rolled off these assembly lines back in 1945.
2: My mother, father, grandmother all worked on them. My mom started the day after she turned 16 years old.
7: Turning four. T.J. Norman is an airplane mechanic from a long line of B-29 mechanics and Doc became his patient. Four's turning.
2: We ordered some new boot material.
7: His job wasn't just to make the plane a static display in a museum. Nope, what he had to do seemed impossible, to get Doc flying again.
2: Can you really do it just for the love of the plane? Just for the love of the plane. I uh, love this airplane. There's just nothing else like it.
8: You ready?
6: Soon,
7: volunteers started showing up to help T.J. out. Ready? And they kept coming.
1: Bring the outboard towards the wing.
7: By the hundreds. I think we're in now.
0: We polished some of these things.
7: Some know? older than Doc itself, like yeah. Connie Palacios.
0: It's kind of hard to believe that I would be here.
7: At 91, Connie is one of the original Rosie the Riveters who worked here at the Boeing plant during World War II. In fact, she put the rivets in Doc herself.
0: From that section down to here.
7: All those are yours? Uh-huh. They're still as good as the day she put them there.
0: Yeah, I'm really proud of this plane. It means a lot to me. Connie and
7: the rest of the volunteers, known collectively as Doc's friends, Spent hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours, up. not to mention hundreds of thousands of donated dollars, to get Doc ready for its hometown debut. Nearly 30 years after it was rescued. few were as awestruck as Army Corps veteran Charles Chauncey. He's 92 and a former B-29 pilot.
1: I don't know what, how many are left of us, but uh, it's getting pretty small. Seeing as you get the bugs out.
7: He flew 35 missions over Japan. So what does it feel like when you're in there and you start up all four of these engines?
1: Oh, <laughs> noisy. <laughs>
7: <laughs> he wasn't kidding. The earth actually moves as they belch to life. It was the day of Doc's first test flight. It had finally arrived, and the air in Wichita was thick with nervous anticipation.
1: Hi, girls. How are you? I'll be right up. Smart ass.
6: (laughs) Yeah.
7: Tony, Chauncey, everybody was there. Connie, too, appropriately dressed as Rosie.
5: I just hope everything goes okay.
9: Oh my goodness. Oh gracious.
7: As Doc lumbered by, there were more than a few tears. Wonderful day. Tony joined Connie at the end of the runway to wait. I'm just thrilled to death. And to watch. It had been 60 years since that plane left the ground. Everything was on the line, and then it happened.
11: It's up!
12: It's up!
7: That's all Tony could say. It's up! I got it! It's up! (laughs) There were cheers all around.
1: Congratulations. I'm telling you, I am absolutely <laughs>
2: delighted. This, is, <laughs> this
1: has is. been one
2: great one great day. I, I couldn't believe it. I feel like doing a dance right
4: now.
6: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Tony had done it. There it was,
7: a B-29 back among the clouds. A tangible piece of flying history. But Tony's real gift was to veterans like Chauncey who quietly, away from all the pomp and circumstance, said more than we ever could. Old Doc, yeah.
3: Most people would have thought you had been hung the other way, but it's
0: not. Still to right come, right. a glimpse at Elton John's photo album. And later, Hollywood legend, Warren Beatty.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Say the word album in connection with Sir Elton John, and your first thought is of the dozens of music albums he's released over the years but he's also assembled a remarkable album of photographs, a collection Anthony Mason is about to share with us.
4: Nearly 200 photographs went on display at London's Tate Modern this past week. The pictures in The Radical Eye, an exhibition of pioneering images from the 1920s to 50s, all came from the collection of one man, Sir Elton John. And this is a Man Ray, I love this. He began like to build his collection 25 oh. years ago. How great is that? Most people would have thought it would have been hung the other way, but it's not. That's the right way to hang it. It's now considered one of the most important in the world. How many photographs do you have? Um, probably near
3: eight now, 8,000. 8,
4: 8,000? So I've been told many are hung floor to ceiling in his seventeen thousand square foot apartment in atlanta and it's just i don't know it's kind of taken over my life i must buy at least three or four photographs a week really Yeah. yeah yeah i just bought three this morning sir elton's passion developed during a period of personal upheaval i can In 1990, after selling off his vast collection of art and furniture, he went into rehab for alcohol addiction.
2: All my pictures
3: seem to fade to black and white.
4: When he came out, he replaced it with a new addiction, photography. And I'd never noticed
3: photography as an art form before. Mm -hmm. Even though I'd have my photograph taken by a lot of great photographers, had something changed in you, do you think? Yeah, I'd gotten sober. I was seen with different eyes. I mean, when you get sober, you see everything in a different context. Mm-hmm. Um, you have clarity. Um, you have a, a bit more wisdom, hopefully. The fact that it accompanied your sobriety meant what? I don't know. I really don't. It was just, it was like a gift. Mm-hmm. You have got sober, and now look at this gift I'm going to give you. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've learned so much from collecting photography. What do you think you suddenly saw? I saw beauty that I'd
4: never seen before. This is the picture that changed everything for Sir Elton. Man Ray's 1932 image called Glass Tears. This was a big leap for you in 1993.
3: It was a huge leap. It was was like a Cape Canaveral leap, (laughs) Cape Kennedy.
4: He bought a vintage print at auction in 1993 for almost $200,000, a record price for a photograph at the time. Were you actually monitoring the auction when it happened? No, of course not. No. So you didn't know till it was over what you paid? No. <laughs> How'd you react when you got no, the no, news? No, 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 I just said get it at all costs. <laughs> and when you found out what the cost was, what did you think? Wow. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I thought I'd thought I gone nuts. I thought, well, you know, and everybody <laughs> in my organization thought I got nuts. Yeah, but that was a big, big step. That was the first major step, I think, of um, getting to be a serious collector.
4: The Tate Modern Show features vintage prints made by the artists themselves, including Andre Cortez's postage stamp-sized underwater swimmer, printed in 1917. You couldn't believe that it's taken in 1917, right? Yeah. Um, It could have been taken yesterday, and it's so beautiful. Edward Steichen's portrait of silent film star Gloria Swanson from 1924. You can practically feel the lace. And Dorothea Lange's Depression-era portrait of a migrant mother. It's a bit like the Mona Lisa, I think.
6: Mm -hmm.
3: Her face, the sorrow, the anxiety. This is like, am I going to be able to feed my child the next day? I'm not a minimalist, as you know. You don't tiptoe into things. No, I don't. I go for it. Why is that? I was born uh, in 1947, grew up when times uh, were quite hard. I just found solace in objects. That may be strange to people, um, but it wasn't strange to me. And objects and music kind of got me through the bad times when I was, you know, uh, collecting. Mm -hmm. I've always collected.
4: And he'll collect controversial work, unsettling images like the photograph of the falling man taken on 9-11 by Associated Press photographer, Richard Drew. I have that photograph, it took me two years to get
3: it. Why did you you want it? Because it's, again, it's just the most incredible, it's the most beautiful image of something so tragic. It's probably one of the most perfect photographs ever
4: taken. He brought it out from his archive for us.
3: But it's not a shot that a lot of people probably would want to hang on their wall. Yeah. And we've never hung it on our wall.
4: Did you have any reservations about your own interest in it, in any way? No. No. No, because it's a historical event.
3: Yeah. It's as important as the naked girl running down the road in Vietnam. Yeah. I'll have that. The little boy in Syria recently, Mm -hmm. just sitting there on the chair. I desperately want that photograph. And we're on, you know, we're trying to get it. It's just important to have them.
4: His homes in Atlanta, England and Beverly Hills have become galleries for his obsession. But now the Sir Elton John collection is on a bigger stage. How do you feel about
3: having a show at the tape? I'm honored, um, I'm very excited, and I'm interested to see what people will feel about it because I want people who've never seen a photograph before because uh, my name might draw them in to see what's all this about, will come away thinking, oh, I really love this. Mm-hmm. This is great, like me.
13: Pick up.
0: Ahead, dinner in the diner.
13: You're gonna have the, the crab meat stuffed filet, Nothing could be finer.
0: Keeping a busy diner running is a tall order. As a sort of appetizer for the annual food issue next Sunday, we decided to drop in on a few with our chef-in-residence, Bobby Flay.
13: You know those times when you're hungry but can't decide what to order? Hmm, what will it be? Pancakes or paella? A burger or a brisket? Give me a corned beef No problem. Whatever makes your mouth water is almost certainly found at a Greek diner. All right, so let me just get this right. Yes. So you're gonna have the the crab meat stuffed fillet, the French dip. You're gonna have uh, cheeseburger. Two cheeseburgers, one LT, the other one deluxe, medium rare. And then you said. Chocolate chip pancakes. I got it. That's going to be my order today. Good stuff. All right, I'll get back to you. Enjoy, it's always good here. Thank you. Good food, cheap prices, and fast service keep the Bel Air Diner in Astoria, Queens packed, with customers choosing from 1,500 different homemade items on the massive, get this, 18-page menu. How do they do this? How do they have your French toast with your vanilla apples and then have popcorn shrimp, seafood paella, and then they have a whole like Mexican corner, some Greek specialties. There's a burger list of like 30 different burgers. Do you have any idea how they do this? What's the magic?
8: But it kind of moves like a well-oiled machine. It's just like all the moving parts just happen and it's magic.
13: There's no explanation for it. That's just the way it is. Greek diner, boom. So what is the secret? It starts with this man, Archie Delaportas. A quiet but demanding head of the family whose restaurant has been named best diner in New York City. He came from Greece when he was 16, hoping for a better life.
1: You have to work.
5: You have to work.
13: You own a diner, you got to work more You're a slave than to the eight place. hours. He met his wife, Patty, while working in her dad's diner. Do you think the Greek work ethic is a big part of why diners are successful? Yes.
8: He's here 20 years, hasn't taken a day off really.
13: Is that right? Yeah. Yep. 10 omelets right here. Their oldest son, Cal, says another secret to success is experienced short order cooks, who use a few simple ingredients, chicken, eggs, beef, and potatoes, to make most dishes fast. So you got the burger going, somebody else has set set up the plate, and you call down there for the eggs. Yes. And then it all comes together on one plate. Exactly. See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. These are the little things that, that don't necessarily get done in a, like a regular restaurant. Pick up. Now, Cal, bread. along with his siblings, Peter and Theoni, are being groomed to take over when Archie finally puts his feet up. If they can handle it. Do these guys have the work ethic that you have? When they get here. No way. When yeah, they, when they, they come here when, they here, when they're here. When yeah. they're here. When they're here, yes. Getting them here sometimes is hard. Uh, it's, it's very hard, you hard to call to, them up, get course, up out of bed. Of yeah. course. Are you guys willing to put in the hours he thinks it takes to be successful in this business? Well,
4: there are two
11: of us. The, so, exactly. yeah, we'll split yeah, his hours down the middle. Then, yeah, sure, that's
13: perfect. Still, despite the grueling hours, there's a reason they keep coming back.
10: My father worked so hard to get it where it is. It's it's part of our lives, like we grew up in the diner. It's a part of my life, and I want to like thank it for for what it's given me.
13: It's a sentiment found in many family-run restaurants. But why are so many diners run by Greeks? That initial wave of immigrants, they come over, open diners, and then their brothers, their cousins, their sisters come over. Where do they get jobs? In the diner. Greeks just sort
10: of
5: take over diners.
13: Food critic Pete Genovese literally wrote the book on the subject. He says Greeks brought ideas from the homeland. They didn't call it a diner, they called it a Caffeion. It's a place where the, local, the locals hung out. It's a coffee, basically a glorified coffee shop, a
10: lot of open air. It's a place to meet your buddies there, and, it, and most importantly, it's a place to find out what was going on in the community. Gossip. Exactly, local news, local gossip. What is it, And what is the American Diner today? That's exactly the first place you go if you want to find out who's doing what to whom, You know, this local scandal, you know, who's about to get indicted.
13: All right, so we got this special for tonight. For, for Nick and Maria Callas, children of Greek immigrants, a community family place is all they've ever known. Our parents owned a diner together in Edison, and we basically grew up together. And my father was the front guy, and her father was the chef in the back. And we, uh, our families knew each other. The couple bought the nearly 100-year-old Broad Street Diner in Keyport, New Jersey, last year. I always loved these little stainless steel diners. Always wanted one. I got a phone call we, and we came down and we had breakfast and that was it. We said yes, definitely. And, you know, I loved it. I fell in love with it, the town, everything. Maria works the till. You seem like you know everybody.
0: We do. It's really family friendly.
13: Nick works the grill. This is a special for today. We do a great combo okay. chicken souvlaki. Zadziky spinach pie and a baby Greek salad. Oh, I want that to go. Nine ninety five. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, that's $9.95. Yeah, and it. Nine ninety five. It sells out. It's that's, great. Of course, it sells out. You're giving it away for free. This is the best diner in New Jersey. No wonder Pete Genovese just named it the number one diner in New Jersey, beating out nearly six hundred others. Quite an accomplishment, considering the state is the diner capital of the world. What do you attribute to your success? My wife. No. <laughs> And with three boys, Nick and Maria Callas already have the next generation lined up. If they love it, Like it the way we or love it. not. I don't know if I would push them to it, but given what I've
0: seen, just with family, with us, once you get in the door, <laughs> it's
10: really
13: hard to get out.
0: It's really hard to get out, it is. Right. Oh, it's so nice seeing you. Steve Hartman. You kind of wonder, you know, is it time to turn to the box? unwraps a surprise package, next. A surprise package with a lesson for us all is the story our Steve Hartman has to tell.
11: Brandon and Kathy Gunn of Northville, Michigan have been married nine years now, and yet they just recently opened their last wedding present.
5: It was by far the greatest gift because it taught us so many lessons about how to be married.
11: The present was from Kathy's great-aunt, Allison, and it came with a card that read, do not open until first disagreement. I'm breaking case of emergency, I hope this works. They say they needed it many times, but never opened it.
0: You kind of wonder, you know, is it time to turn to the box? Should we open the box? Do we need it right now? But what if the next spat is worse and we didn't have the box, then what?
11: So it sat on the top shelf of the kitchen pantry. Through all the arguments about dishes left undone, through stress and slamming doors, even when they thought it wasn't worth it anymore, Brandon and Kathy refused to surrender to that last wedding present. They finally opened the gift just recently, not because they were fighting, but because they weren't and hadn't for quite some time. After nine years of successfully resolving their differences, Brandon and Kathy were confident they would never really need the contents. What they found was remarkably unremarkable. Some money for flowers and wine, some bath salts, nothing that could really stop a fight at all. And that's when it hit them that the real gift wasn't anything in the box. That the real gift, the priceless gift, had been staring at them all along.
0: Everything we needed we had between us. We just had to figure it out on our own. (laughs)
11: By not turning to the box, Brandon and Kathy say they were forced to learn tolerance, compromise, and patience. Something we could all use more of this week. Because there's nothing magical about wedding gifts or ballot boxes. The keys to harmony are in us. All we have to do is dig deep and find them.
0: Next, close up on Warren Beatty.
10: This next comedian is from Africa. And people think a guy in leopard skin will come running on the stage. And
0: later, Trevor Noah, seriously funny.
8: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I
6: I go into that shop, and they're so great looking, you know? And and I'm doing their hair, and they feel great, and they smell great. That's it. It makes my day. I mean... Makes me feel like I'm going to live forever.
9: It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again
0: is Jane Pauley. That's Warren Beatty with Goldie Hawn in the 1975 movie classic, Shampoo. Just one of the roles that make him a Hollywood legend. And Hollywood is where Mo Rocca joined him for
5: a recent stroll. You don't have a star. Why not? (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh... Well, you don't have to have a star if you don't want it. Come on. Let's face it. At 79, Warren Beatty doesn't need a star on Hollywood Boulevard to remind people that he's a living legend. This is his first movie role. You won't forget him. His first movie part, opposite Natalie Wood in 1961's Splendor in the Grass, made him a household name.
0: Are we going to the victory
9: dance?
6: Think of things I'd rather do. This uh, this theater. Yeah. What this theater was was the first theater we ever showed Bonnie and Clyde in. How are you? This year's Miss Bonnie Parker, ladies me. I'm Clyde Barrett.
5: Beatty was only 29 when he produced and starred opposite Faye Dunaway in Bonnie and Clyde.
6: We robbed banks.
5: A movie milestone that forever changed the way Hollywood depicted violence.
6: Well, the place to be now is Russia. And in
5: 1981, he starred in and won an Oscar for directing Reds, a three and a half hour epic about American communists in the early 20th century. But it's not just his work that's captivated the public for over half a century, it's also his love life. He's had relationships with Julie Christie, Diane Keaton, Leslie Carone, and was rumored to be linked with, well, a lot of beautiful women. So much to talk about. Did you have mentors early on?
6: I got to meet producers and directors and screenwriters.
5: But as we learned when we sat down with him at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles... Warren Beatty isn't the easiest person to interview. Does anyone spring to mind as somebody that really taught you something? Uh, Here's what
6: I, when you say, uh, name somebody, I I always avoid that. That's why I'm
5: such a bad interview. Billionaire, goddammit, not millionaire. But Warren Beatty has a movie to promote, and so here we are. In Rules Don't Apply, he plays the famously secretive billionaire Howard Hughes. Have you heard from people that I'm crazy? Though the film centers on an aspiring actress from Virginia and her driver, both church-going small-towners, who struggle to keep their religious values intact in 1958 Hollywood.
1: She still believes that once you've been intimate or gone all the way with a person, that in the eyes of God, you're committed to that person for the rest of your life
5: I agree with Sarah
10: that's why I've never done it that's why I'm waiting because I have to be sure
5: Beatty himself was raised Southern Baptist in Virginia before coming to Hollywood in the late 1950s one of the characters in the movie says once you've been intimate you're married was that your understanding when you were growing up
6: I would say that as a teenager I was uh, all over the lot. I I, I didn't know for sure what I felt about all of those things. I don't want to pontificate on on your show about this because you're editing and I'm not. And so I want to be very clear about what I say. And I have learned in my long period of being What's the word? Famous or well-known? Yeah, famous. <clears throat> I've learned that I... I uh, um, if I want to say something, I should say it myself. Especially when it comes to his new movie. At first, I thought that it was a movie mainly about Howard Hughes, and then my own self-obsession took over, and I thought, no, no, this is what I'm more as interested in is what was
5: hollywood like when i came here babies howard hughes is a man obsessed with his privacy
6: may i give you some advice yes never trust anybody (laughs) he (laughs) very much wanted to stay out of sight and uh he was very interested in controlling the image of how he was seen now i see a look on your face and you're gonna say how is that in common with me well I'll tell you what, uh, the, the, the title that most interested me in a long time was the, the Christopher Lash uh, title of his book called The Culture of Narcissism.
5: I, in my defense, I wasn't going to call you a narcissist. You're a control freak, but I wasn't going to call you a narcissist.
6: Well, a control freak is, uh, I, I'm guilty, but ask anybody who works with me. I, I, I want them to give feedback, uh,
5: and, and, I, and, and I, 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 I do collaborate with smart people. And Warren Beatty is friends with a lot of smart and famous people in politics and, of course, in Hollywood. Do you see this booth? It's it's in that booth that I first met Jack Nicholson. That booth is in Hollywood's famed Musso and Frank Grill, one of Beatty's longtime favorites. The first time I ever met
6: Jack was in
5: 1964, I think. Sixty-five. By then, his older sister was already a star. You know what's funny is a lot of people watching this won't know until now that, that Shirley MacLaine Mort- is my sister. Yeah, isn't <laughs> that funny? And you never made a movie together. That's true. It would have been neat if you, if you had. Uh, not a bad idea. You wouldn't have to play brother or sister. Just play two characters.
6: I, I think we shouldn't
5: play man and wife.
6: That would not be a good idea.
5: No, that would be pushing the envelope a little too much. Yes, that would be throwing the envelope away. (laughs) May I? And there's another woman Warren Beatty will talk about.
6: The way you were staring at me, I thought you were going to ask me for something a little more exciting. Like what? Use your imagination. I'm using it. Let me
4: know
5: when you're finished. He met actress Annette Bening during the production of 1991's Bugsy. They have four children. Okay, this is the part of the interview where we talk about how much you love your wife. (laughs) Yeah. How much do you love your wife?
6: Um, It is the most intelligent thing that I ever have done. My life has completely flowered with Mm -hmm. Annette and the kids. I am uh,
5: extremely proud of her in every respect. What do you think your life would be like if you hadn't met Annette?
6: Uh, (laughs) I I try not to think about it. I mean, would you be on Tinder? On Tinder? Oh, I'm not very good on on that stuff. You wouldn't be like dating a
5: Kardashian? Oh. You'd be, okay, we don't know. It seems that after 58 years in Hollywood, Warren Beatty is happy to talk about his movies and his marriage and let the rest speak for itself. Next March, you will have been married for 25 years. That is correct. It seems like 25 weeks. <laughs> I feel very po-
6: positively about it and, uh, and, and very lucky. And, and um, I could go on and on and on.
0: Look who's talking. Late night comic Trevor Noah. As Michelle Miller explains, he's been charting his own unique course almost nightly since his show's debut last fall.
7: September 28,
12: 2015. To understand just how far Trevor Noah has come to be the host of Comedy Central's The Daily Show, listen to his very first joke on his very first night.
10: I'm not going to lie, growing up, in the dusty streets of South Africa, I never dreamed that I would one day have, well, two things, really. Um, an indoor toilet (laughs) and, and a job as host of The Daily Show. And his
12: first year on the job has been a thriller.
10: If this morning you finally woke up from a coma, well, you might want to go back. The most stunning upset in political history, it's Trump. With Donald the strangest election the in memory finally over. States. This entire result is it's sort of like Trump's hair. I know it's real, but my mind can't accept it. it.
12: just And for many viewers, it was hard to accept Trevor Noah as a replacement for longtime host John Stewart when The Daily Show came out and said, Trevor Noah, our new host, America was like, who?
10: (laughs) It was. You know, my favorite thing, was it was like, America was like, who? And then there was like a subset of people in America, many of them immigrants, many of them people who had family overseas, and they were like, finally! (laughs) (laughs) Then
12: again, Noah has always thought of himself as an outsider. Born mixed race, he grew up in South Africa during the racially segregated time known as apartheid.
10: It was blatant. You must remember, apartheid was the best racism, and this is not in a joking manner. People don't realize how well thought out apartheid was.
12: His mother was South African and black. His father, a Swiss national, was white. Their courtship, a favorite subject of his stand-up
10: routine. My mom was like, "Woo! I don't care, I want a white man, Woo! And my dad was also like, well, you know how the Swiss love chocolate, so he was just... What wasn't funny was that his
12: parents, legally forbidden to marry, broke the law not only for being together, but also by having him. He calls his new memoir, Born a
10: Crime. I remembered my dad used to love running with me. I used to remember running with him in the park and running with him in the streets. And then when I got older and I realized about the laws in South Africa, he wasn't running with me, he was running from me. This was a man who couldn't be seen with this child because then the game would be up, you know, The, the, the lie would be revealed. Though today
12: it seems hard to believe, Being discovered as a mixed-race family could mean a fine for his father, a rest for his mother, and an orphanage for him.
10: My mom was was genius. I mean, she was friends with a woman who was my skin color, You know, a woman who was a different race but my skin color, and so she would get her to act like she was my mom, and then my mom would walk with us in the streets and act like she was my maid. She would act like she worked for us. But that's the world we lived in. My mom found a way to navigate that world.
12: Feeling like an outsider in both black and white communities, Noah credits his mother for getting him through the worst of times.
10: She said, I can't promise you money, I can't promise you a good life, but I can promise you knowledge and food. Those are the two things I'll make sure you get. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Trevor
1: Noah.
12: There was also humor. As Noah got older, he turned to stand up mining his life experiences for laughs. Yeah, we laugh at everything, case in point. Even the very painful ones.
10: My mother was shot, right? She was shot twice, once in the ass, and she was shot in the head. Oh, yeah, got serious.
12: In 2009, Noah's mother was shot twice by her ex-husband in a drunken rage. It was humor that helped his family heal. Even when your mom was shot.
10: Yeah, yeah, even during that time. And my mom looks at me and she goes, Shh, shh, shh Trevor, Trevor, shh, 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 don't cry, baby. I said, No, mom, I'm gonna cry. You were shot in the head. And she says, No, 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 no. Look on the bright side. I said, What bright side? She says, No. At least now because of my nose, you're officially the best looking person in the family. <laughs> she was the first one to make a joke, and and we still joke about it till this day. I see some people look at me with pity when I tell these stories, and I go, No. It's not a story of pity, it's a story of triumph. Americans don't know a lot about South Africa.
12: Around that time, Noah began performing in small clubs around the U.S. Oh my God, oh my God, you're from
10: Africa. How did you get here?
12: But American audiences didn't know what to make of an African comic who looked and sounded like Noah.
10: This next comedian is from Africa. And people think a guy in leopard skin will come running on the stage. Let me tell you monkey know, jokes.
12: But one American in particular did part. get it. We are very pleased to welcome our newest contributor from
5: South Africa, Mr. Trevor Noah. Trevor, thanks for joining us.
12: John Stewart, who hired him as a daily show correspondent. Only four months
10: later, he was tapped as Stewart's successor. I remember being weak. Yeah. I I was was lucky I was sitting down. I think I would have fallen. I would have fainted. (laughs) Welcome to The
12: Daily Show, I'm Trevor Noah. A year in, it hasn't been all laughs. Ratings for The Daily Show are down. But on the plus side, online
10: and global viewership is up. They're like, Trevor, we should go camping. I was like, why? Why would I do that? I've worked so hard to not camp.
12: And Noah still manages to perform stand-up almost every weekend. It's where the 32-year-old seems to be at his happiest. And though he's far from home, it's the lessons of home that remind
10: him just how far he's come. One day I woke up and I went, wait, what's the worst that could happen? What do I lose? What do I have... Is it failure? Is it... Do you know how far I've come in my life? Do you know where I've come from to get to this place, to be sitting in this? There is no such thing as failure in my world
8: right
9: now. What did some of these tombstones look like?
8: They're unrecognizable.
9: Coming up, lest we forget.
0: President Obama placed a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknowns in Washington Friday. To honor our veterans anna werner has found a florida man who sees honoring fallen heroes as a lifelong commitment
9: in cemeteries across america you will see them headstones blackened by age and the elements what did some of these tombstones look like
8: they're unrecognizable they were filled with moss. They were very dirty.
9: And what troubled Andrew Lumish more was, many belonged to veterans. What disturbed you about that so much?
8: They were forgotten. I couldn't properly thank them. I couldn't properly understand who they were or what they were about.
9: So uh, these were totally black?
8: They were black. They right? were, you could not read them at all.
9: So Lumish made it his life's goal to scrub away that grime, and uncover the names on veterans' headstones so visitors would see them.
8: And if they can't read it at all, they can't celebrate it, they can't honor that person, they can't appreciate that person. Whereas if you properly restore the monuments, you can begin an entire conversation and potentially, in a figurative sense, bring that person back to life.
9: Lumish's regular job is specialty cleaning. Though he'd never worked on a headstone before, he developed his own method for cleaning them.
8: I scrub, and I scrub, and I get the edges, and I get in the letters, and I get in the numbers. It could take 20 minutes, it could take two hours.
9: And his results are stunning. This is what a gravestone from 1917 looked like before he cleaned it, and now. Most any Sunday, you can find him here. You live in Tampa. You could be at the beach Mm
8: -hmm. on Sundays. Yeah, I could, absolutely. This is more fun for me.
9: This is more fun?
8: Hands down, seven days a week, 365 days a year. If I could do this every day, I would.
9: He set up this Facebook page titled with his nickname, The Good Cemeteryan. It's a celebration of those veterans' lives filled with the stories of the men and women beneath the gravestones. He gets a lot of thanks from veterans and their families for what he does, but has trouble feeling like he deserves it.
8: I am appreciative of it, but I'm unworthy of the same respect of someone who who chooses to, to go the route to serve our country. And for someone to approach me, to show me that level of respect, Uh, it's humbling to say the least.
9: Bringing back the names and lives of veterans, he says, is just what he does.
8: I get to everyone eventually. Um,
9: That's a tall order.
8: Not if you love doing it. I
9: mean, there are thousands of tombstones, monuments.
8: I'm going to live a long time.
9: I'm Jane Pauley.
0: Please join us here again next Sunday morning.